0: Chapter 11 of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume 2 by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 The Polar Journey, Part 3 The Plateau from Mount Darwin to Latitude eighty seven degrees thirty two minutes south. First Sledge Scott, Wilson, Oates, Seaman Evans. Second Sledge. Lieutenant Evans Bowers Lashley Crean For the first week on the plateau, Bowers wrote a full diary, which I give below. After December 28th, there are little more than fragmentary notes until January 19th, the day the party started to return from the pole. From then until January 25th he wrote fully, nothing after that until January twenty-ninth, followed by more fragments to February 3rd, I suppose, That is the last entry he made. But this is not surprising, even in a man of Bowers' energy. The time a man can give to writing under such conditions is limited, and Bowers had a great deal of it to do before he could think of a diary, the meteorological log, sites for position as well as rating sites for time, and all the routine work of weights, provisions and depots. He wrote no diary at the Pole, but he made a very full meteorological report while there in addition to working out sights the wonder is that he kept a diary at all from bowers diary december twenty second midsummer day we have had a brilliant day with temperature about zero and no wind altogether charming conditions i rigged up the upper glacier depot after breakfast we depoted two half weekly units for return of the two parties Also, all crampons and glacier gear, such as ice axes, crowbar, spare alpine rope, etc., personal gear, medical, and in fact everything we could dispense with. I left my old finesco, wind trousers, and some other spare gear in a bag for going back. The two advance parties' weights amounted to £190 per man. They consisted of the permanent weights, 12 weeks' food and oil, spare sledge runners, etc., we said good-bye, and sent messages and photo-films with the first returning party, which consisted of Atch, Cherry, Silas and Kaon. It was quite touching saying farewell to our good pals. They wished us luck, and Cherry, Atch, and Silas quite overwhelmed me. We went forward. The owner's team, as before, consisting of Dr. Bill, Titus and Seaman Evans, and Lieutenant Teddy Evans, and Lashley, coming over to my sledge and tent to join up with Crean and myself. We all left the depot cairn, marked with two spare ten feet sledge runners, and a large black flag on one. Our morning march was not so long as usual, owing to making up the depot, but we did five miles uphill, hauling our heavier loads more easily than the lighter ones yesterday. A fall in the temperature had improved the surface. We had also sandpapered our runners after the tearing up they had had on the glacier. This made a tremendous difference. The afternoon march brought our total up to 10.6 miles for the day on a south-westerly course. We are steering south-west with a few to avoiding ice falls which Shackleton met with. We came across very few crevasses. The few we found were as broad as a street, and crossing them the whole party, sledge and all, would be on the bridge at once. They only gave way at the edges, and we did nothing worse than put our feet through now and then. The surface is all snow now, neve and hard sastrugi, which seem to point to a strong prevalent south-south-west wind here. We are well clear of the land now, and it is a beautiful evening. I have just taken six photographs of the Dominion range. We can see many new mountains. Our position by observation is 85 degrees 13 minutes 29 seconds south, 161 degrees 54 minutes 45 seconds east. Variation being 175 degrees 45 minutes December 23rd Turned out at usual time 5.45 a.m. I am cook this week in our tent. After breakfast built two cairns to mark spot, and shoved off at quarter to eight. We started up a big slope on a south-westerly course, to avoid the pressure which lay across our track to the southward. It was a pretty useful slog up the rise. At one time it seemed as if we would never top the slope. We stopped for five minutes to look round after two and a half hours hard plugging and about one and a half hours later reached the top from which we could see the distant mountains which have so recently been our companions. They are beginning to look pretty magnificent. The top of the great pressure ridge was running roughly south-east and north-west. It was one of a succession of ridges which probably cover an area of fifty or sixty square miles. In this neighbourhood Shackleton met them almost to eighty-six and a half degrees south at the top of the ridge were vast crevasses into which we could have dropped the terra nova easily the bridges were firm however except at the sides though we had frequent stumbles into the conservatory roof so to speak the sledges were rushed over them without mishap we had to head farther west to clear disturbances and at one time were going west-northwest at lunch camp we had done eight and a half miles and in the afternoon we completed fifteen on a southwesterly course over improved ground Our routine is to actually haul our sledges for nine hours a day, five in the morning, 7.15 a.m. till 1 p.m., and four in the afternoon, 2.30 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. We turn out at 5.45 a.m. just now. The loads are still pretty heavy, but the surface is remarkably good considering all things. One gets pretty weary towards the end of the day. All my muscles have had their turn at being stiffened up. These hills are giving my back ones a reminder. But they will ache less to-morrow, and finally cease to do so, as is the case with legs etc, which had their turn first. DECEMBER twenty-fourth, CHRISTMAS EVE We started off heading due south this morning. As we are many miles to the westward of Shackleton's course, and should, if anywhere, be clear of the ice-falls and pressure. Of course, no mortals having been here, one can only conjecture. As a matter of fact, we found later in the day that we were not clear by any means, and had to do a bit of dodging about to avoid disturbances, as well as mount vast ridges, with the tops of them a chaos of crevasses. The tops are pretty hard ice-snow, over which the sledges run easily. It is quite a holiday after slogging up the slopes on the softer surface with our heavy loads, which amount to over one hundred and ninety pounds per man. We mark our night camp by two cairns, and our lunch camp by single ones. It is doubtful, however, among these ridges if we will ever pick them up again, and it does not really matter, as we have excellent land for the Upper Glacier Depot. We completed fourteen miles and turned in as usual pretty tired. DECEMBER 25TH CHRISTMAS DAY A strange and strenuous Christmas for me, with plenty of snow to look at and very little else. The breeze that had blown in our faces all yesterday blew more freshly to-day with surface drift. It fairly nipped one's nose and face starting off until one got warmed up. We had to pull in wind-blouses, as though one's body kept warm enough on the march the arms got numbed with the penetrating wind no matter how vigorously they were swung. Another thing is that one cannot stop the team on the march to get clothes on and off, so it is better to go the whole hog, and be too hot than cause delays. We had the addition of a little pony-meat for breakfast to celebrate the day. I am the cook of our tent this week." We steered south again, and struck our friends the crevasses, and climbed ridges again about the middle of the morning we were all falling in continually but lashley in my team had the worst drop he fell to the length of his harness and the trace i was glad that having noticed his rope rather worn i had given him a new one a few days before he jerked crean and me off our feet backwards and crean's harness being jammed under the sledge which was half across an eight feet bridge he could do nothing i was a little afraid of sledge and all going down but fortunately the crevasse ran diagonally we could not see lashley for a great overhanging piece of ice was over him teddy evans and i cleared Crean, and we all three got lashley up with the alpine rope cut into the snow sides which overhung the hole we then got the sledge into safety to-day is lashley's birthday he is married and has a family is forty-four years of age and due for his pension from the service he is as strong as most and is an undefeated old sportsman being a chief stoker royal navy His original job was charge of one of the ill-fated motor sledges. The following is Lashley's own account. Christmas Day and a good one. We have done fifteen miles over a very changing surface. First of all it was very much crevassed and pretty rotten. We were often in difficulties as to which way we should tackle it. I had the misfortune to drop clean through but was stopped with a jerk when at the end of my harness. It was not of course a very nice sensation especially on Christmas Day and being my birthday as well. While spinning round in space, like I was, it took me a few seconds to gather together my thoughts and see what kind of a place I was in. It certainly was not a fairy's place. When I had collected myself, I heard someone calling from above. Are you all right, Lashley? I was all right, it is true, but I did not care to be dangling in the air on a piece of rope, especially when I looked round and saw what kind of place it was. It seemed about fifty feet deep and eight feet wide and a hundred and twenty feet long this information i had ample time to gain while dangling there i could measure the width with my ski sticks as i had them on my wrists it seemed a long time before i saw the rope come down alongside me with a bowline in it for me to put my foot in and get dragged out it was not a job i should care to have to go through often as being in the crevasse i had got cold and a bit frostbitten on hands and face which made it more difficult for me to help myself anyhow mr evans bowes and crean hauled me out and crean wished me many happy returns of the day and of course i thanked him politely and the others laughed but all were pleased i was not hurt bar a bit of a shake it was funny although they called to the other team to stop they did not hear but went trudging on and did not know until they looked round just in time to see me arrive on top again then they waited for us to come up with them the captain asked if i was all right and could go on again which i could honestly say yes to and at night when we stopped for dinner i felt i could do two dinners in anyhow we had a pretty good tuck-in dinner consisted of pemmican biscuits chocolate eclair pony meat plum pudding and crystallized ginger and four caramels each we none of us could hardly move we had done over eight miles at lunch i had managed to scrape together from the barrier rations enough extra food to allow us a stick of chocolate each for lunch with two spoonfuls of raisins each in our tea In the afternoon we got clear of crevasses pretty soon, but towards the end of the afternoon Captain Scott got fairly wound up, and went on and on. The breeze died down, and my breath kept fogging my glasses, and our windproofs got oppressively warm, and altogether things were pretty rotten. At last he stopped, and we found we had done fourteen and three-quarter miles. He said, "'What about fifteen miles for Christmas Day?' So we gladly went on. Anything definite is better than indefinite trudging. We had a great feed which I had kept hidden and out of the official weights since our departure from winter quarters it consisted of a good fat hoosh with pony meat and ground biscuit a chocolate hoosh made of water cocoa sugar biscuits raisins and thickened with a spoonful of arrowroot this is the most satisfying stuff imaginable then came two and a half square inches of plum duff each and a good mug of cocoa washed down the whole in addition to this we had four caramels each and four squares of crystallized ginger I positively could not eat all mine, and turned in feeling as if I had made a beast of myself. I wrote up my journal. In fact, I should have liked somebody to put me to bed. December twenty-sixth, we have seen many new ranges of mountains extending to the southeast of the Dominion Range. They are very distant, however, and must evidently be the top of those bounding the barrier. They could only be seen from the tops of the ridges, as waves up which we are continually mounting. Our height yesterday morning by hypsometer was eight thousand feet that is our last hypsometer record as i had the misfortune to break the thermometer the hypsometer was one of my chief delights and nobody could have been more disgusted than myself at its breaking however we have the aneroid to check the height we are going gradually up and up as one would expect a considerable amount of lassitude was felt over breakfast after our feed last night the last thing on earth i wanted to do was to ship the harness around my poor tummy when we started as usual, a stiff breeze from the south and a temperature of minus seven blew in our faces. Strange to say, however, we don't get frostbitten. I suppose it's the open air life. I could not tell if I had frostbite on my face now, as it is all scales. And saw so my lips and nose. A considerable amount of red hair is endeavouring to cover up matters. We crossed several ridges, and after the effects of overfeeding had worn off, did a pretty good march of thirteen miles. No more Christmas days, so no more big hooshes. December 27. There is something the matter with our sledge, or our team, as we have an awful slog to keep up with the others. I asked Dr. Bill, and he said their sledge ran very easily. Ours is nothing but a desperate drag, with constant rallies to keep up. We certainly managed to do so, but I am sure we cannot keep this up for long. We are all pretty well done up to-night, after doing 13.3 miles our salvation is on the summits of the ridges where hard neve and sastrugi obtain and we skip over this slippery stuff and make up lost ground easily in soft snow the other team draw steadily ahead and it is fairly heartbreaking to know you are putting your life out hour after hour while they go along with little apparent effort december twenty eighth the last few days have been absolutely cloudless with unbroken sunshine for twenty-four hours it sounds very nice but the temperature never comes above zero and what shackleton called the pitiless increasing wind of the great plateau continues to blow at all times from the south it never ceases and all night it whistles round the tents all day it blows in our faces sometimes it's south-south-east or south-east to south and sometimes even south to west but always southerly chiefly accompanied by low drift which at night forms quite a deposit around the sledges We expected this wind, so we must not growl at getting it. It will be great fun sailing the sledges back before it. As far as weather is concerned, we have had remarkably fine days up here on this limitless snow plain. I should like to know what there is beneath us. Mountains and valleys simply levelled off to the top with ice? We constantly come across disturbances which I can only imagine are caused by the peaks of ice-covered mountains, so no doubt some of the icefalls and crevasses are accountable to the same source our coming west has not cleared them as we have seen more disturbances to the west many miles away however they are getting less and less and, and now nothing but featureless rises with apparently no crevasses our first two hours pulling to-day from lashley's diary december twenty ninth nineteen eleven a nasty headwind all day and low drift which accumulates in patches and makes it the deuce of a job to get along We have got to put in long days to do the distance. December 30th, 1911. Sledges going heavy. Surface and wind the same as yesterday. We depot our ski tonight. That is the party returning tomorrow. When we march in the forenoon and camp to change our sledge runners into 10 feet. Done 11 miles, but a bit stiff. December 31st, 1911. After doing 7 miles, we camped and done the sledges, which took us until 11pm and we had to dig out to get them done by then, made a depot and saw the old year out and the new year in. We all wondered where we should be next year. It was so still and quiet. The weather was dull and overcast all night. In fact, we have not seen much of the sun lately. It would be so nice if we could sometimes get a glimpse of it. The sun is always cheering. January 1912, New Year's Day We pushed on as usual, but were rather late getting away. 9.10 something unusual for us to be as late. The temperature and wind is still very troublesome. We are now ahead of Shackleton's dates and have passed the 87th parallel, so it is only 180 miles to the pole. January 2nd, 1912. The dragon is still very heavy, and we seem to be always climbing higher. We are now over 10,000 feet above sea level. It makes it bad as we don't get enough heat in our food, and the tea is not strong enough to run out the pot. Everything gets cold so quickly. The water boils at about 196 degrees Fahrenheit. Scott's own diary of this first fortnight on the plateau shows the immense shove of the man. He was getting every inch out of the miles, every ounce out of his companions. Also, he was in a hurry. He always was. That blizzard which had delayed him just before the gateway, and the resulting surfaces which had delayed him in the lower reaches of the glacier. One can feel the averages running through his brain. So many miles to-day, so many more to-morrow. When shall we come to an end of this pressure? Can we go straight, or must we go more west? And then the great undulating waves with troughs eight miles wide, and the buried mountains causing whirlpools in the ice. How immense and how annoying! The monotonous march, the necessity to keep the mind concentrated to steer among disturbances, the relief of a steady plod when the disturbances cease for a time, then more pressure and more crevasses, Always slog on, slog on, always a fraction of a mile more. On December 30th, he writes, We have caught up Shackleton's dates. They made wonderful marches, averaging nearly 15 statute miles, 13 geographical, a day for the whole day marches, until the second return party turned back on January 4th. Scott writes on December 26th, It seems astonishing to be disappointed with a march of fifteen statute miles, when I had contemplated doing little more than ten with full loads. The last returning party came back with the news that Scott must reach the Pole with the greatest ease. This seemed almost a certainty, and yet it was, as we know, a false impression. Scott's plans were based on Shackleton's averages over the same country. The blizzard came and put him badly behind, but despite this he caught Shackleton up, No doubt the general idea then was that Scott was going to have a much easier time than he had expected. We certainly did not realise then, and I do not think Scott himself had any notion of, the price which had been paid. Of the three teams, of four men each, which started from the bottom of the Beardmore, Scott's team was a very long way the strongest. It was the team which, with one addition, went to the pole. Lieutenant Evans's team had mostly done a lot of man-hauling already. It was hungry, and I think a bit stale. Bowers' team was fresh and managed to keep up for the most part, but it was very done at the end of the day. Scott's own team went along with comparative ease. From the top of the glacier, two teams went on during the last fortnight of which we have been speaking. The first of them was Scott's unit complete, just as it had pulled up the glacier. The second team consisted, I believe, of the men whom Scott considered to be the strongest. Two from Evans' team, and two from Bowers' all scott's team were fresh to the extent that they had done no man hauling until we started up the glacier but two of the other team lieutenant evans and lashley had been man hauling since the breakdown of the second motor on november first they had man hauled four hundred statute miles farther than the rest indeed lashley's man hauling journey from corner camp to beyond eighty seven degrees thirty two minutes south and back is one of the great feats of polar travelling surely and not very slowly Scott's team began to wear down the other team. They were going easily when the others were making heavy weather and were sometimes far behind during the fortnight. They rose according to the corrected observations, from seven thousand one hundred and fifty one feet upper glacier depot to nine thousand three hundred and ninety two feet above sea level, three degree depot, the rarefied air of the plateau with its cold winds and lower temperatures just now about minus ten degrees to minus twelve degrees at night and minus three degrees during the day were having their effect on the second team as well as the forced marches. This is quite clear from Scott's diary, and from the other diaries also. What did not appear until after the last returning party had turned homewards was that the first team was getting worn out too. This team, which had gone so strong up the glacier which had done those amazingly good marches on the plateau, broke up unexpectedly, and in some respects rapidly, from the 88th parallel onwards. Seaman Evans was the first man to crack. He was the heaviest, largest, most muscular man we had, and that was probably one of the main reasons, for his allowance of food was the same as the others, but one mishap which contributed to his collapse seemed to have happened during his first fortnight on the plateau. On December 31st, the 12-feet sledges were turned into 10-feet ones by stripping off the old scratched runners which had come up the glacier, and shipping new 10-feet ones which had been brought for the purpose. This job was done by the seamen, and Evans appears to have had some accident to his hand which is mentioned several times afterward meanwhile scott had to decide whom he was going to take on with him to the pole for it was becoming clear that in all probability he would reach the pole what castles one builds now hopefully that the pole is ours he wrote the day after the supporting party left him the final advance to the pole was according to plan to have been made by four men we were organised in four-man units. Our rations were made up for four men for a week. Our tents held four men. Our cookers held four mugs, four pannikins, and four spoons. Four days before the supporting party turned, Scott ordered the second sledge of four men to depot their ski. It is clear, I supposed, that at this time he meant the polar party to consist of four men. I think there can be no doubt that he meant one of those men to be himself.' For your own ear also, I am exceedingly fit and can go with the best of them,' he wrote from the top of the glacier. He changed his mind and went forward a party of five—Scott, Wilson, Bowers-Oates, and Seaman Evans. I am sure he wished to take as many men as possible to the Pole. He sent three men back—Lieutenant Evans in charge, and two seamen Lashley and Crean. It is the vivid story of those three men who turned on January 4th, in latitude 87 degrees 32 minutes— which is told by Lashley in the next chapter. Scott wrote home, A last note from a hopeful position. I think it's going to be all right. We have a fine party going forward, and arrangements are all going well. Ten months afterwards, we found their bodies. End of chapter 11